Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hey, hi, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here with Luz Gonzalez Brito. Luz, I met at an event that I held a couple months ago around climate. It was called Climate Change Inside and Out. And I can't really explain why I felt a strong resonance with Luce. Um, She wanted to interview me for her PhD work. Um, She's studying at, can you remind me what university it is? UCST. And that's in Brazil? In Brazil, uh, Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul. Yes. So... And I, she also um, transmitted this incredible song from the river where we were holding the event. So I'm not sure what's going to unfold in this conversation, but I've been looking forward to it very much. Um, and I'm not even sure how to begin, but Luz, what's on your mind? Uh, first, uh, thank you for inviting me. I am... Um when I say I'm honored, it's true. Um, to be here with you, looking into your eyes, being with all those people here. And I think it's important to begin rem- remembering, reminding the message from the river. And it goes like that. It it goes like this. of the waters heal 
your soul. Oh, the spirit of the waters heals your The spirit of the I remember that well. I remember remember that moment when you shared that at the uh, at our gathering. I was sitting by the stream and the flowing waters talked to me. I remember that you told us that this kind of experience of communicating with other beings, non-human beings, this kind of communication will be common in the future. But the fact is that in the past, that kind of practice was common. And in the present, is common. That's right. It's just pushed to the margins of our society and to the margins of our own awareness. In fact, this communication is happening all the time, even to the most conservative corporate executive living in suburbia. This communication is happening all the time, but most of them have not had the cultural experience and reinforcement to pay attention or to recognize those communications. Indigenous people from different cultures, they know how to listen to the messages of the land and we don't have to call them. We don't have to call this other beings spirits if you don't want to. But 
they manifest their own form of consciousness. And it's possible to communicate with them. I'm not going to describe the poss possible approaches, scientific approaches to this practice, because when we affirm that other beings are sentient, we are recognizing that they also communicate among themselves and with us also. I think the, the issue or the question that I would pose is why in industrial societies, uh, Euro-American Euro societies, we lost or we look like unaware of other possibilities of communication, knowledge, and experience? Well, in large part, it's an ideology that holds the world as composed of insentient objects. And that ideology sits very comfortably inside an economy that is based on the production of commodities. A commodity is a piece of nature that has been standardized, forced into a set of specifications. So when you're surrounded by objects like that, it looks as if they are not alive. They're not unique. Living beings are unique. Any two human beings are not the same. But when industrial processes make them the same, then they look like they are no longer beings, but just two examples of one thing. So the, there's the story or the ideology about what nature is, what the world is. There's the lived experience in that world. Um, there is a scientific paradigm, or I would say, I would call that an ideology as well, that says that the only thing that's real is numbers, that the path to truth is through quantification. All of these factors and many, many other tributaries converge onto this stream of separation that has engulfed the West, modern society, and taken us to a very desperate place, but ultimately it's a place that is necessary to go. It's almost like the purpose of this journey of separation is so that we could experience the road back, kind of like an adventure. Why would you ever go on an adventure knowing that you're gonna suffer hardship and loneliness? But there's a reason to do it. And I believe that humanity collectively and humanity's elders in council tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago decided that this was an appropriate journey to go on, the journey of separation and then reunion. That's a very abstract answer. Um, there's something else that I'd like to share that comes to mind when I hear you sing that song, which is that this idea that a river is a being, a sentient being that can communicate with you, that can give you a song, 
this idea when I was a young child would have been considered ridiculous. But over my lifetime, it has become, at least in a small subculture, it has become, oh, of course, yes. And then it's kind of turned into people have this idea, therefore they want to attribute something that comes to them as, well, that's the river talking to me, or that's, and sometimes if I'm holding a, a workshop or something, if someone says, I have a poem that I was received from the trees or received, I'm like, uh-oh, because <laughs> when I hear it, it's not always something that lands on me as if it were really from the trees or from the river. But when I heard yours, there was just no doubt that this was from a sacred source. And I wonder, how have you learned to distinguish what is authentically coming from, say, the river, and what might be coming from somewhere else? There, I, uh, I would say that it, there is a process of um, tuning, like you, the person, the body is um, is not prepared to resonate with other vibrations. And I'm not, I'm not using vibration in the sense, in the mystical sense. I'm using vibration in the physical sense. Sounds are vibra vibrations. So the cats, for example, they can listen, they can hear infrasounds. They can hear other sounds that simply pass our ears and we don't recognize our, our brains don't recognize those sounds. So the process of recognizing different images, sounds, is the very process of achieving or trying to accomplish another realm of perception. And this is not mystical, this is very embodied and perceptual experience it's about expanding the possibilities of perception, expanding the perceptual horizon of one's mind and body. Each body of, a, of humans has the possibility of attuning, attunement or tuning or resonating with these different vibrations. The fact is the fact, I, I would say, that it's necessary to improve your own perception. And it, and again, there is nothing myst mystical about that. It's simply being present with all the potentiality of your being, of your, of all the potentiality of your embodied being. And you, you, you probably hear the sounds, the messages from nature and from other beings. It's a little bit ironic that 
what you've described, the extension of our perceptual field, is actually what science does through its devices and instruments, like say a microscope or a telescope, it extends the reach of our perceptions, which underlines the point that you're making that this is not something esoteric necessarily, and that the beings of nature are not just spirits, but they are physical beings. And our communication with these beings includes things that we would consider very mundane. Uh, just observing the habits of animals and the way that plants grow and the seasons and all of these complex interactions. This is all part of the same mindset that could be applied by an ecologist or a biologist in one way and applied by uh, a shaman or a tracker or a hunter in another way. It's all part of the same relationship. What's your uh, PhD research about? Before okay. talking about that, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking on this, um, that point that you were uh, making. Um, there are some cultural, historical forces which led us to to live like we do <laughs> and you can call that separation ideology Cartesian notions dividing body and mind and at the in at the same token separating minds and nature, subject and object. So in this process of this great divide in Western thought, Euro-American thinking, we have lost the connection between, I would say, in, uh, I, I would use in other other words, we forgot the connection because the connection is always there. So I would replace the word lose to, to forget. It's about forgetting the connection because we didn't lose the, the, the connection. But to, um, nevertheless, the, the, uh, it's necessary to separate the na separate nature as an object to be explored so the capitalist system could develop. This is more complex because there are m many people who were shut down in that process. The witches, the so-called mm -hmm. witches, the healers, the people who nurtured how to communicate with other beings they were relegated to silence. So. Yes, continuing even through the scientific era. I mean, even if there have, there have been scientists who have rediscovered the many ways that nature communicates to humans. For example, there was uh, Cleve Baxter who hooked up galvanic measurement devices to plants 
and really began to explore plant intelligence. And he was basically cast out of the scientific establishment and ridiculed anybody who uncovers the unrecognized ways that beings communicate with each other is suspect because it violates one of the deeply held tenets of science as an ideology. So yeah, even it's not just the witches, you know, and the wise women and stuff. It's been happening happening all through the 20th century and even continues to happen. Yeah. So to conclude that that uh, that point about communication with other beings, it happens all the time. It's not something um, circumscribed to the past and not something that will uh, achieve in the future. It's something that it's here and now. And it's just a question of being aware of the connection. Um, my uh, research regards ecology and spirituality. So I have talked to many people in different contexts and with different cultural backgrounds. I have talked to indigenous people, indigenous leaders, like Ailton Krenak. It's a very important uh, leadership in Brazil. I have talked to healers, to people who live in eco-villages, permacultural eco-villages four of them. And I have talked here in the U.S. with uh, eight women who are environmentalists and also people who are seeking or searching for spiritual experiences. It's important to understand that when I am mentioning the, the word the word spirituality I'm not trying to uh, refer to um, a disembodied realm of reality for me spirituality is not separated from materiality so in a sense spirituality can be considered not only as the search for transcendence as another domain of reality outside the physical level or the physical reality. Actually, all those people that I have talked to, they express their spiritual experience in terms of immanence. It's something that is present and to be more specific, spirituality is an experience of acknowledging the connection between me and you, between me and the other people who are here, and between me and the other beings, between me and the trees, between me and the air, the clouds. So... There are some elements for earth-based spirituality in all this 
this uh, understanding. But yeah, spirituality is not only about people who are, you know, this is not comic, but spirituality is not about people who close their eyes and doing mudras, breathing and meditating, separating themselves from social problems. Indeed, spirituality for those people with whom I have talked, spirituality is an experience which can only be considered a full experience or a complete experience when your search for connection, your self-transformation process resonates in the world. There are many different ways to uh, let your self-transformation or to make your self-transformation resonates in the world. Political action, social action are forms, possible forms of doing that. So it's not only about inner work, but it's an inner work which leads to a profound compassion, empathy, and love, even love. I'm using this misunderstood word, misunderstood term. It's a profound experience of love and connection which leads to an action. That's very similar to my my own conception of spirituality. Often I don't like to use the word at all because it, to many people, suggests, uh, as you said, a disembodied realm, an immaterial realm. And I don't want to divide the universe into two. We've had enough of that. But for me, it, one way I think of it is it, spirituality is the quest to recover lost parts of myself or as you might say forgotten parts of myself that could be to reestablish external connections that have languished connections to other people and to beings of nature um, it could be to sense things that i have forgotten how to sense or to recover capacities that have become weak from not being used. And as these capacities are restored, then again, as you say, who I am in the world, whether it's politically, socially, relationally with, with people I love, it changes because I'm seeing things that I was not able to see before. And I'm, I have access to a way of being that necessarily includes them. The other way that I kind of define spirituality, it's the realm of everything that eludes quantification. And in that respect, there is a dichotomy between spirituality and science, because science is the study of the quantifiable. 
that is the particular tool of, that science uses to extend our perceptions. The problem is that that tool can only extend our perceptions in a certain way. It allows us to see some things, but when we become over-reliant on that tool, then we become blind to the things that cannot be accessed through measurement, through, through analysis, through reductionism, and through quantity. And then we imagine that the other things don't even exist. So it's not, a, this is the evolution that I foresee for humanity is not about discarding science at all. It's simply to understand it within its proper domain and to open up to the so many other domains of knowledge, of relationship, of being, and that this opening process might be called spirituality. To avoid any reductionisms, it's important, I think, to um, avoid the either-or thinking. Spirituality can be understood in different ways. We can have different understandings of spirituality. And one of them, which is the one I am thinking on and nurturing, uh, it's the notion of spirituality as a search for connection between all living beings in the world. And in a sense, this is a little bit subtle, in a sense, ecology as a scientific discipline can also be considered the search for connection or the research on the connections between ecosystems, between living beings among them and living beings and sets of living beings, relations between living beings in ecosystems and the relations between ecosystems in mm -hmm. greater systems. So in a sense, spirituality and ecology are like two tributaries of the same river which lead to the same ocean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would almost say that, that ecology becomes spirituality because it gets more and more subtle. First, you're studying the relationships between different living beings, and then you start to study the relationships between the relationships and the relationships between those relationships. It gets so subtle that whatever measurements it was based on you, you are attaining something that transcends any of the, the quantities involved. Um, and I wanted to add one more subtlety to what you were saying about avoiding either or. Where I've come to is, it's actually not about, for me, about avoiding either or, but recognizing the domain in which either or is useful and what it is useful for. The same as recognizing the domain of quantification and what's that useful for, or reductionistic analytic thought. Um, 
either or is a lens to look at the world through. Uh, the binary relationship, the yin and the yang, um, the male and the female, these are, are ways of understanding the world that have great power and can bring great clarity and can also obscure everything that doesn't fit into those categories. Um, and I, under, I, I think that at a time in our the evolution of our species, at a time when we've become very almost addicted to the binary, to the either-or, to the categorization of the world, to the ordering of the world, that it's a healthy response to really say, okay, I, I want to put that lens aside for now and, and try on some other ways of understanding. But I also do want to continue to hold these much overused and misapplied lenses sacred as well, and to recognize that they have their value too. Otherwise, we get into another kind of subtle either-or thinking, which is we're not going to do either or. We're going to do this other thing. You know, it's either either or or something else. And for me, I guess, like that's a lot of concepts. For me, it comes down to a spirit of gentleness and and reverence and a uh, acceptance. Well, I am wondering in that possibilities of perception that we can have on the world are completely related, not constrained, but related to our positions in the world. Mm. So for me, for example, as a trans Sendental woman, uh, I have learned how to be attentive to other people's needs and realities, trying to understand them from where they come and which are the wounds and the situations, circumstances, battles inner battles that they have had to say, I am this or that. I have this or that understanding about reality. I'm, I am talking about the importance of affection, emotions, perceptions as a valid, as a ground, experiential ground for our understandings about the world. This is not something that I am uh, creating now. It's a process. Artists, in their different crafts, they know and they have been for centuries and centuries and thousands of years expressing their own experiences. The point that I want to, to make with this reminds the um, 
idea of Tolstoy. He once told us that if you want to be universal, you have to begin painting your own village or something like that. I am touching upon one of the, the main dichotomies of Western thinking, which is universal in particular. But this binary, these two terms, they are analogous to other terms, like global and local, for example. And, and they are, global and local are more concrete in a sense. How can I know that my change, my inner change, my self-transformation, and my choices in my daily life, my experience of transformation, my concern with recycling, my concern with composting, my concern with, you know, not using my car to go to the grocery store in the corner next to my home. Those micro uh, choices, which are completely related to personal experiences. How can I know that those choices will affect or will have some effect on this macro-structural, microcosmic process of ecological crisis that we are living? You can't know according to what science and force-based causality would recognize as valid knowledge. On some level, you can know it. I think everybody knows that these micro-choices are in some way important beyond just oneself. But if you try to prove it by saying, well, if you compost, then this will happen and A will cause B and B will cause C and C will cause D and therefore the world will be a better place on the macro scale. You're never going to be able to actually trace that out. And usually the mind of separation reaches a wall that's called, well, of course, my choice to compost isn't going to affect the world or the cosmos in any significant way. But if everybody does it, then it will have an effect. So you get into this kind of Kantian categorical imperative, you know, that which which is in my mind an attempt to grapple with the paradox of separation, that the separate self does not have very much of an effect on a Newtonian universe. So you then resort to this um, moral or ethical principle, but it's ultimately unsatisfying because the separate self says, okay, fine, but my composting doesn't make other people compost. It, what if they don't do it? Then my actions are worthless. And this is an expression of the, the profound isolation of the separate self. Nothing I do matters. So I think that in order to 
um, to know that our lives are worthwhile, we have to tap into other ways of knowing and trust those other ways of knowing. And then it becomes a matter, it doesn't matter if your composting is going to save the world or not. Because it's, it's, for me, it's a, a bit of a paradox. It's like the reason that I do it cannot be for some larger instrumental purpose. It's a relationship between me and that apple core, you know, between me and that banana peel, where I want to do right by that. Yet by doing so, even though it's actually between me and this banana, I am altering the entire hologram. Because, and this is where, where the science of separation has been breaking down for the last hundred years with quantum mechanics, with complexity theory, with um, holographic theory, uh, where the, the, everything about the whole is contained in every single one of the parts. So here, another convergence between science and spirituality. This is the point I, I would like to, to explore, not explore, but talk about. Um, yeah, you, you, you talk, uh, so you mention sometimes the, the terms holographic mirror and morphic resonance, morphic fields. And if we look to the articles of Rupert Sheldrake, and if we see the reception of his articles, we can see that he was almost <laughs> burned at the stake. He was he, his text was like considered heretic text. Yeah, heresy. Yes, which could be which should be burned, mm -hmm. you know, in public squares. And and one of the reasons why he had he faced that kind of reception is exactly because he tries to go beyond separation mentality. In case, he goes beyond the separation between the individual and the mind, the individual mind and nature. So if we can assume that our daily choices, daily gestures can resonate in the world holographically, we can feel and we can know and we can understand and experience the responsibility that we have. But there are some political, there are uh, another political thing. There, are, The first point you can talk, I would like to hear you, but there are another point. The idea that the individual are, that the individuals are powerless one of the foundations of the nation state is the notion that individuals give their powers to choose the power the choice power they give to the govern governor the leader the politician the king who will who will 
take decision, make decisions for them in her, in them, in their behalf. This is the social contract. Social contract, yes. Yeah, the notion of Russell. And I, I, I sometimes I, I, I find I find myself wondering to what extent this notion of giving your responsibility away to other people is one of the reasons why we are so afraid or feeling that we cannot do anything to change the systems, social and economic and political systems. So as for, to the first point, I'll just add one thing. Um, that when I speak about holographic mirrors or morphic resonance, I'm not saying perform these acts of kindness and compassion because they are going to create a morphic field. I'm invoking the morphic field to placate that terrified, anxious guardian that says, is it really okay to trust my heart and do these beautiful little things when it won't make a difference in the world and there's such big problems in the world? I, I'm, I'm, I invoke morphic fields to say, it's okay. You don't have to worry about that. Anything you do will have a global or a cosmic impact. So it's, it's teachings like morphic resonance or the holographic universe are not necessary for somebody who is totally faithful to the communication of their heart. It's only for those of us who have been indoctrinated into the ideologies of separation. And there's a lot of simple, humble people on this earth who do not need to be told that. They are not stopped by thinking that their personal actions are worthless. They're just not living in that, in that universe. And I think that might be related a little bit to the second part of your inquiry. <laughs> like first about the social contract, properly speaking, a contract can only be a valid contract can only be made between two equal individuals who are entering the contract of their own free will and choice. If one of them is being coerced or has no agency, or if you're asleep and I pick up your hand and I make you sign the, the contract, that's not a valid contract. So the Rousseauvian social contract seems to me to be very much of a, uh, of a invalid contract. And also it takes as axiomatic freely choosing separate individual subjects. When we understand the self as more than just a freely choosing separate individual, but as a social being in essence, then the notion of a social contract is not useful to me. So I think a lot of people, maybe almost it's almost universal in a modern mass society, they feel lost and powerless because the collective self, this larger self that creates, in a sense, the individual self is not acting in alignment with what's good and true and beautiful. 
So it, it would be as if you, like suppose the, the entire collective self was just collapsed into your own body and you are, you are everybody. And, and it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, like you find yourself going into some trance and, but still observing yourself helplessly doing all these terrible things and you can't stop. Like you can, you can see it happening, but you can't prevent it from happening. And it's as if you are doing it. I mean, this is actually the case when people lash out violently at their loved ones, for example, it's not like, it's not like they are fully choosing to do that. When a, when a, a person, you know, physically assaults their spouse, for example, usually they say something just took over. I lost control. It didn't even feel like me that was doing that. Then they say, but I must take responsibility for it. So there's a, there's a helplessness here that I think mirrors the helplessness that I feel when I see my government you know, bombing school buses in Yemen or something like that. This is the um, this is a fundamental alienation in the kind of society we have today. Um, I think there might be some deeper places we could go. I'm curious what what you have to add to that. Well, I would like to listen a little bit more about your ideas on the relation between this, the individual self and this collective self, which I suppose, listening to you now and remembering your other dialogue, the other dialogues we have had, your other uh, talks, I suppose that you understand this individual self as embodied self. So... I remember you you mentioned another moment you mentioned the notion of social body an ecological body so I would like to listen a little bit more your ideas on this uh, relations between this into the personal self the uh, the collective self the individual body and this broad body of society and uh, the other beings, because I really do think that this relationship between this, this those bodies and selves can illumine or uh, lead to a very clear, not conclusion, but a very clear uh, understanding on how change occurs in the world growing up in my culture I learned to think of myself as a separate being having experiences but I think that the truth is more that I am the totality of my experiences and the most potent experiences that create my being are my relationships. 
especially my close love relationships. So I'm not a separate subject who has a mother and a father and a wife and um, four sons and f dear friends, etc., etc. It's more like, and then beyond that, to all of these diffuse social and ecological relationships, even the relationship of to the air I breathe and the water I drink, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here I am, this separate bubble amongst all of these other bubbles. But it's that every single one of these relationships constitutes me. And I cannot even speak of existing outside of these relationships. This has become clear with basic quantum mechanics, where you cannot speak of a photon existing in the concrete sense of it's at this point in space and time. It is here now. You cannot say that unless it's having a relationship with a measuring device or a relationship with some other electron or photon or something like that. Then in relationship to each other, they have an existence. This way of thinking, I mean, I'm not a political theorist. You know, I'm not really a philosopher. I'm not immersed in this discourse. So I bet there are people out there who have been um, applying the quantum metaphor, at least, to the social, political, ecological, and, and individual self. Um, I have a feeling that you probably are better versed in the theory than I am. I just can intuit that there must be a body of theory that comes from this recognition that I am relationship. I wish I could offer you more. Uh, thank you. Um, one of the things that I have learned is the, the relevance of being humble before the grandiosity of the universe. And there, there will always be something that escapes from my understanding and knowledge. So, transpersonal psychology, for example, is one trend of thought which considers this relationality of the self. But, as a social scientist, I would say that thinking sociologically, the self is constituted by social relations. They are not a separated self, sociologically speaking. Because the ideas we create about the world, the ideas that we have about what reality is, and even our desires that we are so attached attached to them and that we think that we are our desires and that we are choosing to act like this or act like that. All those choices 
uh, and ideas and gestures that we have daily, most of them are socially constructed. Yeah, totally a product of the environment. If you remove yourself from, say, a suburban daily existence and you are transported to a village in the rainforest, you're not going to have the same desires. Your desire for a good cup of espresso or your desire to watch the next episode of the miniseries, it might linger for a day or two out of habit, but very soon you will discover completely different desires. You will be a different being, a different person. People have the same experience even when there's a momentous event in their lives, like the ending of a relationship or the beginning of a new relationship. All of those addictions uh, may disappear. And this really, I think it wreaks havoc on neoliberal economic theory, which posits a world of freely choosing separate individuals who are seeking to fulfill their desires. It just leaves out everything about what a self actually is. And following that, we might begin to doubt the efficacy of moral persuasion and the whole self-help movement, which is basically fixing the locus of change on the level of the individual. But there's a paradox because who I speak to in anything I do is a bunch of people. What can I ask if I'm having a conversation with you? I can't say, well, I'm just going to, I mean, I can, I can offer you suggestions that you could implement, but can I offer Brazil suggestions or some larger being when the eyes and ears that are in front of me are of this part of the larger being. Uh, I could sometimes actually though, when I think about it, I could be speaking to somebody, but I'm actually speaking to something else, something that they are merely a proxy for, you know, like, like, Proxy is becoming a, a commonly used term. A template. But I actually, in this case, I do mean an actual proxy. You know, like a whole bunch of shareholders choose one person to represent them. Mm -hmm. And so that they're not actually just themselves. They are this entire body of shareholders. Like, that's what I mean. Like, I can speak to you as a proxy for a society or as the planet. Because in a way, you are the planet in the holographic sense, everything happening on earth is on, is in some way happening inside of your body, or I could say inside of this body, this piece of earth that is sitting in front of me, this piece of earth, which, which represents all of earth. So I can speak to you as loose. I can speak to you as, as Brazil. I could speak to you as 
not that you're necessarily the best proxy for Brazil, but I could speak to you as humanity. I could speak to you as the planet. I could speak to you as God. Because all everything of these beings is also here. And that doesn't invalidate any of the levels. Like again, we're not casting out Luce as a subject, having experiences that are unique, unique in the matrix of all being. But you're not only that. And maybe we can kind of move in and out of these different layers of individual, social, ecological selfhood. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, except for one point. And it's a and it's a point. You used three or four times the word represented representation or represent representative. Yeah, it's not the right word though. It's it's tried to switch to proxy. You don't have I'm yeah. not arguing and you don't have to defend. Yeah. It's not a problem. But it it's not a problem in itself, but it's a problem of language. Because we are using representational language to dialogue so it's completely under comprehensible that you are we are thinking with notions notions which are symbolizing or expressing some experiences or phenomena but this is a point because when i say i am the earth This is not representational. Right. When I say that my body is made of everything from which is made the stars and the land, and when I say I am water, I am the rivers, I am it this is not only about a identity or a pseudo identity that I am building for myself because there are people who think that psychological issues are just creations of the mind and they are and psychological reality is a reality also not only a, a false mm -hmm. uh, representation of the world but this is not the main point the point is that when I say I am the water I am not expressing the notion or the identity or the feeling or the the uh, mere perception that I am water. This is not poetic only. I am saying that I am ontologically water. And I don't think there is anything mystical, esoteric, or even spiritual in this statement because my body is made of oxygen the elements which are flowing the air and in the earth in the waters are the same elements constituting this physical body which I can touch you can see so this is not about uh, only about representation This is about ontology. A, a, somebody who's 
representing the traditional scientific view would say, of course, you have water in your body, but that's different than the water in the river. Those are two separate samples of a universal substance. So the water in your body has nothing to do with the water in the river, unless we could identify some one of the four forces of nature that is, you know, influencing the water in your body. But when I spoke to you as, if I use the word representation, um, it's not what I meant when I say I can speak to you as earth or as God, because it's not that like earth has elected you to represent it and take the message back to earth, but it's because of the holographic principle that everything that is of earth is also of you. And everything that is of you is of earth. And I can tune into these, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but I can tune into these different aspects of who you are. I mean, ultimately these categories break down, but they're still useful. Like I could speak of loose as an individual, loose as a human representing and embodying all humans. Um, I don't know, actually the whole thing came up because I was uh, reflecting, I was almost arguing with myself because I'm like, well, I can only ever speak to people, but actually that's not true. I'm not actually speaking just to individual people. Like I believe right now I could speak to that particular river because, see, here's, here's a, a question in my mind right now, though. I'm very sure if I tune in, I could speak to that river right now. But if, if Lori here was sitting in your chair, I don't know that I could do that. Because um, she knows the river also, actually, but maybe has not had that profound a relationship to it, but I could be wrong. Um, but, or I could take someone who's never been to that river and put them in this chair. And I wouldn't necessarily feel like I had the same access. So there is a, I'm returning here to particularity. We can't just erase difference, you know? And like, each of us is like a node in a whole matrix. Um, I'm just kind of grasping around here, but maybe you can offer something or synthesize what I'm getting at. This is a very important point. Actually, this is the source or the fount for many misunderstandings and even psychological problems regarding a spiritual search. There are some people, especially people who are committed, engaged with uh, monist traditions, like Advaita Vedanta or Buddhism. Some people experience the void. The void is the point where the mind cannot recognize difference anymore. 
Everything is a whole. More than a whole. Everything is one. And the sense of unity can be a problem when you look to everything around us, surrounding us. You see the different faces, the different bodies, the different eyes, and you see that we are different people. There are different trees, species of trees, qualities of water in flowing in different rivers, modalities of water, modalities of the same set of elements. So this is an important point. I, I don't have an answer. I don't have answers. I just have questions. <laughs> And yeah. this is an important point. How can we know that we are connected with, without falling into a homogeneous effort to make people fit in, the, in a different set, a new set of patterns? Because we don't want to, we want to acknowledge the connections, but we don't want people to be the same. Otherwise, we are going to be fascists. Right. And this is, this is not what we want. One way that I understand it is just because the whole cosmos is mapped within you and it is also mapped within me doesn't mean that it's mapped in the same way. Because you are at a different nexus point of the totality of relationships. So even though we can recognize in each other something universal, that does not mean that we are the same. Um, I almost want to draw like a graph, you know. But I think I think actually this is a good point to end, the ending at the question and the fact that neither of us have... Uh, You know, it's funny how I say, you know, it's in a lot of people's speech these days. I think it is getting at, at the, the understanding that what we know, we can't put into words. So we say, you know, you know, and maybe that's because what we know is not possible to put into words you know the river is flowing flowing and growing the river is flowing down to the sea mother Carry me, child, I will always be. Mother, carry me down to the sea. The river is flowing, flowing and growing. The river is flowing down to the sea. Mother, carry me, a child, 
I will always be. Mother, carry me down to the sea. Down to the sea. Thank you. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.